Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. If anybody thinks that $500 trillion outstanding globally will ever be repaid, they've got to be joking. None of that ever going to get repaid. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political, and social upheaval, Life on Planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. Victor Schreft is my guest coming up. You've just heard him describe the jaw-dropping scale of today's global debt in the age of COVID-19 and how he sees the prospects for repayment. Victor will talk about the great financial challenges now facing mankind and offer his own answers straight from his new book, The Great Rupture, Three Empires, Four Turning Points, and the Future of Humanity. Victor Schweft was born in Kiev when it was the capital of Soviet Ukraine. Today, he's a global strategist at McCary Bank in Hong Kong. Victor's book is controversial, perhaps even disturbing, since it is the basis for Victor's conclusion that there really is no solution today other than a total social and economic collapse for our seemingly uncontrollable debt time bomb. Victor says the solution lies in some form of continuing government state controls of our money supply and policies. You might call it a kind of communism, state capitalism. I do share Victor's enthusiasm for this topic, but I have to disagree with many of his solutions. Victor looks favorably upon modern monetary theory of money printing and advocates for a universal basic income. But let's give him credit. His book, The Great Rupture, may be groundbreaking. He traces four turning points in history, including today's information age, and looks at three empires as he presents his thesis for protecting our freedom. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Victor Schweft says he addresses big questions asked by some of the most distinguished names in high finance today about our global debt. Here's what Odeon Capital's Dick Beauvais had to tell us in a recent show. question is, what happens the morning after? What happens when the Fed has to stop printing this money and the economy still hasn't recovered? It could get very ugly, yeah. Victor Schweff's answer is simple. There's no going back. So when people say we need to stop printing money, uh, I basically say, well, if you try to converge nominal GDP and liquidity that you're creating, you do understand that there will be no pension. You do understand that your 401k is going to be much less. You do understand that the house you're living in will not be worth what you pay for it. Are you happy with that? Uh, and the answer generally is no. So one of the things the book addresses, why did we decide to financialize? Because 
One part of the argument, of course, in the book is technology and information age. But the other part of the argument is financialization. Why did we decide suddenly to financialize so much? In 1950s, 60s, 70s, even into early 80s, we needed only a dollar of debt for every dollar of GDP. Well, the the thing is that... um, People describe a dead bomb or our future generations have to pay it back. Well, nothing actually has to be paid back. The entire purpose of monetary system is to engineer a very slow burn uh, defaults. That's what we're doing. That is the reason why central banks are so desperate to get inflation going. Well, sure, it's grand to have you back. I'm your host, John Edburn. Why was the basketball court all wet? Because the players kept dribbling on it. The dad joke. (laughs) Corny, groan-worthy, but also one of the simplest ways to share a moment with your kids. What did the buffalo say when he dropped his son off for school? Bye, son. (laughs) So take a moment to make your kid laugh, because dad jokes rule. Make your kid laugh today. Go to fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Well, it's just great to have you all back again on my show. I hope you're doing well. I want to first give a big shout out to the hosts at TMI Daily. It's a podcast of TMI Hollywood. I was a guest last Thursday, October 16th. We talked about a lot of stuff. We had a lot of fun, politics, entertainment, polarization in America. You got to go up there and listen to that podcast. We'll get back to that again on another show. Thanks again for having me as your guest. We're going to talk to Victor Schweft in a wee moment. According to Victor, modern technologies are disrupting the structure of our societies, altering every facet of our lives from the nature of work and what we intrinsically value to how we are informed, entertained, and educated. Wow, it's big stuff. According to Victor, this promises to be a far deeper disruption than industrial revolutions. Humanity, he says, is at a major turning point, and how we respond to the merger of technology and financialization will decide our future. Will it be capitalism or communism, feudalism or despotism? I first asked Victor Schweft to describe his book, The Great Rupture, Three Empires, Four Turning Points and the Future of Humanity. Do we need to be free? Basically, what we described in the book, that the humanity is facing one of the greatest disruptions, uh, certainly in the last uh, 500 years. Um, it's what I describe as a Fujiwara impact, or essentially a merger of two major hurricanes. Uh, one hurricane is technological, a revolution of the information age, uh, and the other one is financialization. Uh, technological revolution is an outgrowth of human spirit 
spirit. Uh, financialization is a wound that we inflicted upon ourselves. But those two forces are now converging. And what they're doing, they're distorting every aspect of our life from our work, what we do, why do we turn up at work at 9 a.m. and finish at 5 p.m., what is the value of what we do, how we get entertained, how we get um, educated, uh, as well as social interactions, personal interactions. It changes everything about our life. Um, I think McKinsey was absolutely correct to argue that information age has a 3,000 times the impact uh, of industrial revolution. In other words, it's much broader uh, and also a lot faster. Uh, And so the idea of the rupture is that we're gradually approaching a black hole and we don't know what lies on the other side of the black hole. So it is a true rupture. You mentioned three empires. Could you just quickly identify those three? The first part of the book is very much historical in nature. And it basically asks the question, why did the West succeed and non-Western civilizations have collapsed over the last 500 years? Uh, And we identified three major civilizations, uh, Chinese Empire, uh, Russian Empire, uh, as well as the Ottomans. Uh, And so the question we ask, what were the recipe for national and personal success over the last 500 years? And how much do those recipes uh, for success actually is currently uh, changing? The lessons of the last five centuries were unequivocal. Without freedom, there could be no prosperity or happiness. However, does this still hold true in the information age? Tell us why you said that and asked that question. There's no question that if you think of the last five centuries, uh, it's really ability of the West to develop, to, to deliver greater freedom, freedom to exchange ideas, views, to disagree, freedom to explore, freedom to exchange ideas. That's what enabled England to have industrial revolution. Uh, and that's why we don't have Qing dynasty anymore. And that's why there is no Russian Tsars. And that's why Ottomans no longer exist. It's an interesting side story. Uh, why civilizations clearly over a long period of time refuse to get off the doomsday highway, refuse to accept the inevitable. So the freedom was the recipe of the West. Now, as we progress over the next uh, 20 or 30 years, what we basically argued since 1971, we were on a very, very different journey. The last 10, 15 years were incredibly disorienting, but the next two decades will be even more disorienting. And so what we're asking is extent to which freedom is still important in the information age. Uh, Maybe we can create now highly illiberal, maybe even brutal societies that no longer will suffer from the stagnation of ideas, stagnation of innovation, stagnation of wealth or growth. And there is a possibility that that actually will be true. We no longer need freedom certainly not to the same extent as what we did in the last five centuries. And in my view, China is almost on the cusp of proving uh, that freedom is almost optional. Well, many people would dispute that with you about China and have certain reservations, but we can, we can get back to that. You say that one thing is certain, traditional liberal capitalism will not survive. 
Yes. Uh, essentially, what we argued that the essence of liberal capitalism is capital and labor. If capital and labor no longer function the way they have done so over the last couple of centuries, then liberal capitalism no longer exists. And what we basically argued in the book, if you think of industrial age, what were the important ingredients? Well, first of all, capital was very scarce. It had to be allocated very carefully. That's why we have accounting systems. That's why we have a discounted cash flow analysis or capital asset pricing models. Today, we are drowning in capital. We have more capital than what we know to do with. Um, and the reason we're drowning in capital is because for the last four decades, we were generating much more liquidity in capital than what underlying economies are requiring. We actually have five, ten times more capital than we need. It is not evenly or even fairly distributed, but there is enough capital out there. So the first major difference. The second major difference is that industrial age was a highly capital-intensive age. This was the era of railways, machinery, factories, roads. Um, if you think of today, most of the new activities are essentially driven by intangible assets. Most of the new activities are quite capital light. And not only they're capital light, they have almost no capacity limitations. Uh, and they also offer huge spillover effects. You know, one industry suddenly starts to impact another industry uh, at a great speed. So we're generating a lot of capital and we don't really need that much capital. So the result is that the cost of capital collapsed. Uh, and that's certainly been the case over the last 20 or 30 years. Now, collapsing the cost of capital basically makes a major pillar of the liberal capitalism uh, non-functional. Capital is almost becoming worthless. Now, the other side of liberal capitalism is labor. If you think of people uh, in the 1920th century, they were the primary driver of productivity. That's why they needed to be skilled to ever higher level. That's why people went to colleges. That's why we eliminated illiteracy. And the idea was that people will be the brains of the machine. And so we started skilling people in increasingly narrow and narrow specializations. If you think of the modern age, uh, we're already suffering from decline of the premium for college education. Increasingly, labor is no longer the primary productivity driver. Increasingly, labor is not the brain of machinery anymore. And in the next 10 to 20 years, that's going to go beyond that. It's all started with entertainers, with journalists. It progressed to traders, uh, analysts, fund managers, anybody who deals with digits. Within the next 5 to 10 years, we're going into atoms, which means manufacturing, logistic, distribution is going to change. And beyond that, uh, 30, 40 years from now, it's uh, singularity where you simply will not be able to tell the difference between human and non-human contribution. So what's happening right now, labor is suffering from what I call declining marginal return and declining pricing power. That is why even at very low levels of unemployment, people were not asking for more wages because they know they, we don't deserve 
uh, to get paid more. Uh, and, so, and so the result is that neither capital nor labor functions the same way. Uh, labor increasingly is being uh, warehoused in temporary, uh, what LSE professor once said, temporary bullshit occupations, <laughs> uh, pending pending their final disposal in a way in which society will find it palatable. And the only reason we're still here is that technology progressed far enough to reduce our utility and pricing power, but not yet far enough to replace us altogether. And when people say, hey, in the past, capital functions differently, labor functions differently, it was all okay. Well, two things to, to, to say here. Number one, uh, is that uh, if you were, and that's what I mentioned in the book, if you go back in time, uh, London, early 1800s, you find a bunch of Luddites just about to smash the loop. And, you'd, and you go and tell them, please don't do it. You know, it's all going to be okay 30 or 40 years from now. Uh, I think those Luddites would have probably smashed your head uh, because, <laughs> because 30, 40 years was the <clears throat> entire lifetime. So the first thing to remember, is that we don't feel the pain of people who had to go through the first and the second industrial revolution. We just remember the outcomes, which were pretty good. It so happens the last 10 years and the next 20 or 30 years will be our progression. It's going to be our life. Uh, and the second thing to highlight, again, I'm coming back to McKinsey, is that both waterfront and the speed of change, I mean, the information age, is much, much stronger and faster than industrial revolutions. So when people say, don't worry about it, buggy driver, become a truck driver. Well, if we don't need a truck driver, what are they going to do next? They can't become anything else. Uh, very soon, PhD in computer science will find that their contribution is also diminishing. So it's not just going to be construction workers or a truck mm -hmm. drivers or fund managers or analysts. So the bottom line that becomes, if you undermine the function of capital, if you undermine the function of, of labor, the traditional liberal capitalism cannot function. Whatever will be on the other side of the black hole might still be called capitalism, but it won't be the same. Or it might be called communism, or it might be called feudalism, or it might be called despotism, or it might be called something else. But it's not going to be what we have experienced over the last several hundred years. I think we're leading into one of the subjects of your book, a universal basic income, and we'll get to that. But just for clarity here, Victor, you're someone who is a proponent of freedom, free enterprise, capitalism of sorts. Can you give us your thoughts on that? You know something about state controls. I usually say, <clears throat> if I could go back to 1980s, I would gladly do so. Uh, but unfortunately, I cannot. Uh, so the idea of sound money the ideal of private sector uh, primacy, uh, the idea of freedom, unfortunately, no longer exists. Uh, if you think of Federal Reserve, they today determine both price and quantity of money. If they determine price and quantity, why do we need prime dealers for? Actually, why do we need commercial bank for when a one party voluntarily uh, somehow determines what is the price of of the single most important commodity in the in our societies, um, and so so to me, if I could resurrect liberal capitalism, I would love to do that. But that train left the station several decades ago, uh, and so my argument is that we can't go back to liberal capitalism. The only thing we can do uh, is move forward, uh, and if we decide to move forward, 
um, private sector primacy, unfortunately, is not going to play the role. So I would have loved to resurrect liberal capitalism if I could. Uh, the problem is it's no longer possible. Resurrecting sound money, resurrecting primacy of private sector is a dream. Uh, and so I, the book is trying to look at alternatives. If that is not the way we are going to go forward, uh, what are the alternatives? Um, and, and that's what a lot of proponents of private um, enterprise uh, seem to forget. Uh, I usually tell them, uh, if you were to run on agenda, I want to restore liberal capitalism, you say, people, do you like it? See, everybody says, yeah, that's a good idea. But I must tell you that this might involve the fact that the house you're living in is not really worth what you paid for it. Are you okay with that? Uh, and people will say, no, I'm not okay with that. It also might involve clearances of accesses. The idea of capitalism is that you clear the stuff. We haven't been clearing anything for 40 years. And so you would say, you know, uh, it might involve closure factories and banks. Are you okay with that? Most people will say, no, I am not okay for it, with it. So restoring liberal capitalism is politically unacceptable, socially unacceptable, uh, and it's economically uh, unacceptable. So the only thing we can do is to move forward. Over the last three to four decades, we effectively just use predominantly monetary levers. Liquidity, interest rates, uh, those levers are becoming incredibly toxic. They're leading to disinflation. They're leading to massive increases in wealth and income uh, inequalities. Uh, it's reducing growth rates, not increasing growth rates. And so we need to entertain new policy tools. And those new policy tools, again, have to come from the public sector, not private. As I said, private sector will never run again, uh, either our economies or our societies. And so, yes, I've come from state control. And, and so you could say, well, Victor, you've come from the state dominance. You have seen how bad it is. Absolutely. It was terrible. Um, and I can't blame anybody who's been try who was trying to escape from that. Uh, the point, again, I'm making is that when people say socialism and communism has failed, I basically answer, how do you know it failed when it never been tried before? And people say, hey, Soviet Union was communism. No, Soviet Union, what it believed to be communist. Uh, if you think of Karl Marx, the idea of communism was not the socialist perversions of the 20th century. The idea was that it's a society with such a high degree of productivity that the slavery of labor is no longer needed. And indeed, Karl Marx was not the only one. Think of John Maynard Keynes in 1930. He wrote his piece on the future of our grandchildren. Mm. And what he basically was saying, in four generations, which is basically now, <clears throat> in four generations, uh, Humanity will have a major problem, and the problem is what to do with ourselves when uh, technology and compound interest yield us such a returns that we're no longer useful. How are we going to entertain ourselves? How we are going to feel good about ourselves? And if you go back, to, if you go to 1980s, 1990s, people like Peter Drucker, uh, one of the founders of management science, uh, people like Ray Kurzweil, who he is with Google, they've been speculating pretty much on the same ideas. So Karl Marx was speculating back in 1850s. But we can also look at 1930s. We can look at 1980s, 90s. Uh, and the idea of communism, or call it enlightened communism, or call it 
uh, something else uh, more palatable to people is essentially idea of very high productivity society. Uh, and and the, the challenge we have is that right now our productivity is low because we're warehoused in temporary bullshit mm. occupations. As soon as we stop being warehoused, productivity mm. will mushroom. And then the question then becomes, uh, what do we do with ourselves? How do we become valuable part of community? Um, how do we how do we feel satisfied? Is it going to be sports? Is it going to be religion? Is it going to be something else that will make us happy? So just to look at today's global economy and to find out how you define the capital that's flooding our globe, how do you factor in the massive amount of money printing by central banks and the US Federal Reserve? There's a lot of global debt. So where does the actual real capital fit into this? So you find equity is capital, bonds are capital, uh, repo market is capital, uh, anything is capital. So when people say, what is a holistic definition of capital? Well, it's anything that can be used as capital, anything that can be leveraged as capital. Remember, CDSs, uh, uh, collateralized debt obligations back in 2008, was also capital, uh, which was leveraged. Uh, and the thing is, people mm. say, look at what Federal Reserve is doing. Well, in fact, fact, if you put nominal GDP of the United States in mid to late 80s uh, at around 100, uh, and if you put money supply at around 100, for the last 40 years, uh, United States, and by the way, other developed countries as well, have grown money supply two to three times faster than nominal GDP. Now, the question is, the, the difference between those two lines, where is it? Well, the answer, this is your pension plan. This is your 401k. This is your houses that you're living in. Prior to mid-80s, houses were places where you were hiding from rain, cooking meals. They were not an investable asset class. Today, the investable asset class, people flip the flats. They do all sorts of stuff. So when people mm. say, well, we need to stop printing money, <clears throat> uh, I basically say, well, if you try to converge nominal GDP and liquidity that you're creating, you do understand that there will be no pensions. You do understand that your 401k is going to be much less. You do understand that the house you're living in will not be worth what you pay for it. Are you happy with that? Uh, and the answer generally is no. So one of the things the book addresses, why did we decide to financialize? Because one part of the argument, of course, in the book is technology and information age. But the other part of the argument is financialization. Why did we decide suddenly to financialize so much? In 1950s, <clears throat> 60s, 70s, even into early 80s, we needed only a dollar of debt for every dollar of GDP. Now we need three, four, five dollars of debt for every dollar of GDP. If you think of value of all of the financial instruments we have outstanding, it's five, ten times now the size of the underlying economies. So why did we make that decision? Did anybody make that decision? Well, the answer, as, as usual, nobody makes those decisions. We just stumble into it. We can go back to Paul Walker of Federal Reserve. We can go back to uh, 1987 Black uh, Friday and Greenspan put. But essentially in 1980s, deregulation of the global product market, deregulation of the global labor market and capital market started to encourage debt. 
it started to encourage bringing future consumption to the present. And when you start doing it, you can't stop. And we've been on that train, not for the last two or three years. We've been on this train for four decades now. And so the question is, how do you break it? Well, the answer is the only way you can break it is through much uh, uh, more aggressive reliance on fiscal rather than monetary policies. And then the question is, how does the government repay the debt? And the answer, it doesn't. Uh, If anybody thinks that $500 trillion outstanding globally will ever be repaid, they've got to be joking. None of that ever going to get repaid. What you're really describing here, Victor, is a kind of state capitalism, socialism by another name, and modern monetary theory, which we've heard a lot about lately. It's interesting, but you will have a lot of skeptics and a lot of cynics. And I I would have to include myself among among the skeptics, but your theories are fascinating and they're worth studying. So I give you a lot of credit for that. You're really getting into kind of a, a state socialism or state capitalism. That's really where we've been at, it seems to me, by, by your descriptions for the last four decades. And then there's the question of repaying all this debt, which you started to describe. So maybe we could pick it up from there and look at it even closer. Well, the the thing is that um, people describe a dead bomb or our future generations have to pay it back. Well, nothing actually has to be paid back. The entire purpose of monetary system is to engineer a very slow burn uh, defaults. That's what we're doing. That is the reason why central banks are so desperate to get inflation going. For listeners who are listening to your presentation, again, what a study, many of them are saying, well, Victor is really advocating total state control of our economy. And and a lot of people have great difficulty with that. Uh, absolutely, including myself. Uh, but nevertheless, I always ask those people, what is the alternative. Uh, And they say, well, let's just get Federal Reserve out of the game. Wonderful. As soon as you get them out of the game, volatility of asset prices will go berserk. Uh, As volatility of asset prices goes berserk, almost immediately that cloud of finance, which is hanging over global economy, which is five, ten times larger than underlying economy. When I was a young man, underlying economy was a dog. Uh, finance economy was a tail. Today, finance economy is a dog, and the underlying economy is just a tail. And the whole objective of central banks is to ensure that the debt that the dog is not sitting on the tail. Because if you allow volatility to go through the system, the impact on real underlying economies are going to be massive. As I said, house prices will collapse, portfolios will collapse, uh, and how you're going to find your way out of that is far, far from clear. The other thing people say, hey, uh, Victor, um, increasingly the governments are becoming much more intrusive in private sector. Uh, Mm -hmm. It is very true. It is they are becoming much more intrusive. But again, who is to blame? And I usually say people to blame. Uh, Look at yourself in the mirror. You're asking central banks to deliver your house prices. You're asking central banks to deliver your 401ks. Uh, You're also at the same time asking uh, to have jobs. You're asking for firms not to close. 
You're asking for banks not to close. Uh, you're asking for all of that, uh, and it's very hard to deliver. At the same time, remember, the younger generation, particularly millennials and Z generation, they grew up in a different climate to baby boomers, the same way as baby boomers were uprising in late 60s to mid-70s against the silent generation. Uh, millennials in Z today are prizing against baby boomers. And what younger generation is asking for is support, help, community spirit, sharing. Whereas baby boomers were all in favor of choice, freedom. Well, and Victor, so- I, I got to interrupt here. That's all very good. But what about old fashioned virtues such as personal responsibility and not have the government do everything for you and you do it yourself? free enterprise at the local and domestic level. Arguably, the government has been heavily involved in economies, at least in the US, since the First and Second World Wars and the Great Depression, when we had the introduction of the Great Society and welfare programs. You could trace it back a lot of what we're seeing today, except it's on a more intense level now. You're absolutely right. In fact, you can argue, you can go back to 1880s when Iron Chancellor Bismarck uh, introduced the first welfare policies in Germany. At the time, it was regarded as a terrible, terrible thing. So you have unemployment benefits. My God, you have a healthcare <laughs> benefits. Uh, it's going to derail our economy. Well, it didn't. Second Industrial Revolution continued to power on. The reason, the reason Bismarck was introducing is trying to reduce mm-hmm. social tensions that we're building during the Second Industrial Revolution. After this wee break, we'll be right back with Victor Schweft, author of Three Empires, Four Turning Points, and The Future of Humanity. Do we need to be free? Victor is also a global strategist at McCary Bank in Hong Kong, and he's lots to tell us about our current economic situation and mountains of debt. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. To protect her home and family in a disaster, Karen was willing to wade through water, mud, and insurance paperwork. Yeah, I can do this. You go, Karen! By simply understanding and updating what her insurance covers and doesn't cover now, she'll be better prepared no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. Where do you see the role of Wall Street and big financial institutions today? Where do they sit as we look at the globe, COVID-19, massive bailouts for big companies, zombie companies, extended unemployment benefits, mountains of debt. I mean, they're participants in this whole system. What is their role today compared to traditionally? If you go back in the olden days, uh, banks essentially were conduits of, of deposits. So you place the money in the bank, and the bank will just then lend it out to uh, to other people who require capital. Uh, now, what started to happen over the last forty years? Velocity. Uh, has increased. So in other words, in the past, you used to have one financial instrument per asset. So if you did your mortgage, your bank carried your mortgage through the duration of your mortgage. Today, uh, quite often, there is three, four, five pieces of paper for every underlying assets. If suddenly music stops, 
uh, and your mortgage stops, you might find four or five people coming knocking on your door. Some people own the principal uh, on your mortgage. Some will own a right to interest payments. Some will own insurance. So what happened is that the finance industry, after uh, Richard Nixon moved uh, uh, United States of the gold standard in 1971. And after Paul Walker created a monetized system that encouraged uh, uh, borrowing and encouraged debt uh, in late 70s to mid 80s, what started to happen is that finance industry started to generate capital for the sake of capital. Uh, and increasingly, that capital and that liquidity never find its way to the ground. Uh, and so people on the ground never see it. It stays in a cloud of finance, and it keeps multiplying for its own sake. Uh, and so the question that becomes, how do we direct this capital down to the ground? How do we how we direct it to what people want us to do, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's changing education and skilling system, whether it's a healthcare spending, whether it's a basic R&D. Remember, United States used to spend 2% of the GDP on basic R&D, all public all publicly funded. Today, it's closer to 0.6%. Uh, remember, Google invented nothing. Apple invented nothing. Um, they are great innovators. They're not great inventors. Only public sector can invent. So should public sector again spend more on the basic research and development? The answer is yes. So how do we get this money into the places where we want this money to be? And so if you look at financial institutions, the business model is broken. The markets are broken. That is why today, Federal Reserve controls both volume and prices. In a traditional liberal capitalism, central banks will control price or volume, but they don't control both. Today, if Federal Reserve doesn't like the volume, they just buy it or they create it. If they don't like the price, they control the yield curve. Um, and so when people say, how are we going to repay the debt? I basically say, haven't you heard of Bank of Japan? Bank of Japan is already sitting on 51% of bank of B of GJBs, Japanese government paper. Haven't you heard of yield control? Reserve Bank of Australia already doing yield control. Uh, bank of Japan is doing yield control. Uh, every economist out there is urging Federal Reserve to also start controlling the yield curve. So by the time you control prices and volumes, and that was my initial question, why do you need prime dealers? Why do you need free markets? Actually, why do you need commercial banks for that matter? So we've progressed so far over the last four decades, uh, and we financialized so much that central banks increasingly cannot tolerate volatility. They can't tolerate price discovery. And the reason they can't tolerate it, because they're afraid what that volatility is going to do to you, people on the ground, people in houses, people who work, um, what, what will be the impact? Uh, and the more you leverage, the more you financialize, the less volatility central banks can accept, the less price discovery they can accept. And, and the question which everybody tries to debate, how do we end it? Well, the answer, we don't. It never ends. It just keeps mm -hmm. going. You mentioned Japan and Europe and so on. Analysts looking across uh, the Western world and the US would say there are many problems that have to be looked at very closely. We have aging populations. Again, we have this whole debt bubble, which you address. 
and uh, mention how the state could intervene. I'd like to look at governments across uh, the the West and and how they individually uh, consider economic policy. If you take the US as one example, you have on the one side the conservative Republican Party however you define conservative, and then the other, you have the Democrats. They're the sort of two major parties. Now, while they differ radically on ideology, the Republican Party is pro-family, pro-life, pro-religious freedom, without a doubt. On the other hand, the Democrats uh, would be socially liberal, uh, pro-choice, sort of do your own thing, as it were. But when it comes to basic economic policies, they may argue the facts. They may argue over implementation of certain policies and taxes, and they would differ on fundamentals like regulation and trade agreements. But when it comes down to what we're seeing during COVID-19, for example, it seems both of them are certainly on board have the Fed and uh, the government intervene to save us from an absolute disaster and another Great Depression. My question then is, is there any significant differences in how a lot of the parties on both sides stand on the big economic issues? They all seem wedded into money printing. Yes, absolutely. You know, the uh, sort of titles, liberal, conservative, Democrat, whatever, they all change meaning uh, over the ages. Um, Traditional liberals were small state, small level of interference, uh, freedom of expression, freedom to do things that you want to do, don't interfere. Um, That was the old definition of a liberal. The way I look at it, neither Democrats nor Republicans are like that. They are more equivalent to sort of semi-communist and semi-fascist or Mm. semi-extreme left-wing, right-wing. The wonderful thing is that if you think of Stalin and Hitler or extreme left and extreme right, they actually share a lot in common. However, there are differences between extreme left and right. Extreme left generally tends to be global in nature. Uh, They tend to be less focused uh, on uh, social or biological matters. Uh, They don't worry so much about things like procreation, race, religion, and things like that. Um, They prefer small enterprises, uh, things like cottage industries, uh, would regulate very tightly uh, large enterprises because they don't believe in either large enterprises or uh, or finances. Now, extreme right, on the other hand, tends to be nationally based. It's us versus them. Uh, it's our race versus the other race. They tend to be incredibly preoccupied with biological and social matters, procreation, abortion, purity, all the rest of it. In addition to that, they tend to be, as I said, much more localized. They are don't really trust private enterprise, but they prefer to create national champions, and they prefer to tell national champions what to do. Victor, you're talking about the extreme, right? Because conservatives generally, at least in America, are are pro-enterprise. They do support cottage industries and small businesses. They're certainly pro-family and pro-life, and for very good reason. They are economic and social units. How would you describe yourself, Victor? What category do you come under? Uh, pragmatist. Uh, in a sense, in a sense, in a sense, I, 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 I believe perfect outcomes are unattainable. 
uh, I believe uh, perfect solutions uh, do not exist. You're a sort of an a la carte pundit, if you will, a little bit of capitalism, a little bit of socialism, a little bit of libertarianism. I mean, surely there's some kind of an evolving label for your type of theories and ideologies. Essentially, what I believe in is that for different parts of the cycles, for different parts of history, uh, different ideologies or different economic and political models uh, are more suitable. And quite often, some of those models outlive their usefulness. Because if we continue with our current policies that we've used over the last 30 or 40 years, basically two or three things will happen. Number one, interest rates everywhere will go negative. Disinflation will get stronger. Gross pockets will get narrower and narrower. Income and wealth inequalities will continue exploding. Different countries will be moving in different directions and different speeds. Social, geopolitical pressures will continue to rise. Eventually, societies, you just won't be able to keep them together. Uh, and so the question then becomes, if that is the answer, if that, if that is a projection, what is the right answer? that give us economy and society that still keeps some degree of freedom. Remember, 1950s was not a liberal free time. In 1950s, you had a committee for un-American activities. In 1950s, Secretary of State said publicly that if anybody disagrees with the ideology of the United States, they should be deported from the United States. If you think of 1950s, if you were deviant in any form, whether it's politically, socially, culturally, sexually, it was not a good time for you. So 1950s was all about obedience. It was all about everybody should look the same. You know, crew cut, uh, uh, fennel suits, uh, you know, the, the house, wife, two dogs, and the picket fences. Uh, everybody aspired to pretty much the same thing. Now, would you argue that 1950s, early 60s was a bad time? Well, today it is remembered as the golden age. It's actually not remembered as a time, unless, of course, you are a minority, but it's not really remembered by most people. Just look at what people like Paul Krugman uh, or people like Robert Reich is writing. They, they all view it, this period of 50s to mid-60s, as being a golden period rather than a, a, a period of, of terrible things. Um, and that's what baby boomers were prizing. Certainly the 50s and 60s. I didn't grow up in America. I grew up in Ireland through the 60s. We were aware of American culture and a lot of relatives came here. So we heard many of the stories that came back. And all my relatives who came to America praised America as the land of freedom. They got there. What they could not get in their own country was job opportunities and prosperity. It wasn't a perfect time. But compared to today, where we have street riots, families breaking down, economic dislocation, even income inequality, and a lot of social isolation and loneliness, it, it, it wasn't so bad. Yeah, well, uh, you, you obviously have missed uh, uh, University of Berkeley uh, campuses burning. Uh, you've missed in that discussion occupation of Cornell University. You've missed in that discussion riots uh, in Chicago, in Detroit, in LA. Uh, the the second part of uh, Victor, we've had street riots for through the summer, and we had the summer of love absolutely. in Portland, Oregon. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's what I'm saying uh, is that what you saw in the second half of 60s, first half of 70s, is baby boomers surprising against stifling norms 
uh, of the silent generation. What we're seeing today is millennials and Z generation uprising against all the bad things that Bobby Boomers created. Yes, they gave you freedom. Yes, they gave you choice. Yes, they gave you efficiency. Uh, yes, they gave you growth. Uh, yes, they gave you wealth. But they also created extreme income and wealth inequality. They destroyed environments because the growth was regarded as the only thing that really matters. And yes, they've destroyed political culture as well. Uh, and so the younger generation, just like uh, baby boomers back in the 60s and 70s, is saying, no, this is not right. We need to change it. Uh, and so the question that the book tries to address is that what are, what are they going to change it to? Uh, and the answer to me is that they're going to change it much closer to 50s and 60s rather than 80s and 90s. The Great Rupture, Three Empires, Four Turning Points and the Future of Humanity. Do we need to be free? Question mark. Title of your book. Uh, you suggest and propose solutions to our current issues. And one of them is a universal basic income. Why do you support it? To me, uh, universal or basic income guarantee is not designed to create lazy people. It's not a handout. Uh, it's designed to address the key issues. Uh, humans and labor uh, is becoming less and less relevant. It, we are facing not necessarily exploitation, as you will Harari correctly said. We're not facing uh, being... Uh, underpaid or whatever that might be, what we are facing is increasing irrelevancy. Uh, and so what basic income guarantee does... A very interesting point, irrelevancy, and it's a strong word. Are you saying that there could be masses of workers and human beings idled with this revolution we're going through because of technology and all the changes. Fujiwara effect, what I just described, which is a merger of technology and financialization, is accelerating our descent towards the black hole. Uh, in that black hole, by and large, people no longer are the primary productivity drivers. Now, that's already started happening in the 1990s. If you remember in the 1990s, a lot of middle management lost their jobs. Uh, that was the first IT revolution. As we go forward over the next five, 10 years, uh, we will increasingly start attacking atoms. In other words, how we manufacture and distribute will change. In the next five, 10 years, 15 years, most of the factories will start disappearing. Most of the supply and value chains will start disappearing. So the same pressure that journalists have experienced, construction workers, so manufacturing mm. workers will start experiencing. And then, as I said earlier on, 30 years, 40 years from now is a singularity where you can't really differentiate human or non-human contribution. That is where PhD in computer science will start feeling less and less relevant. Now, remember, that perception of irrelevancy everybody feels. That's what drives Maslovian disappointment. That's why people are not happy, because they feel they're not contributing as much as they used to. They're not as valuable as much as they used to be. That feeling of irrelevancy will grow greater and greater every year as we're passing. The way the book describes is that you don't need to be at the frontier of the black hole to feel the black hole. 
We're still, mm. deca- we're still decades away. But what is happening, the black hole is stretching our bodies, is stretching our minds, is stretching the way we look at things, stretching our investment strategies. Uh, if you're a bank, it stretches and changes and alters everything. And so ultimately, uh, Karl Marx was right. Ultimately, John Maynard Keynes was right. Ultimately, Peter Drucker and Ray Corswell are right. We need to find a way of allowing people to find themselves rather than forcing them essentially into slavery of labor. Uh, And so eventually basic income guarantee or universal income guarantee tries to address the issue of social uh, tensions and the issue of growing irrelevancy, not trying to be a handout or create lazy people or anything like that. And by the way, trials were done in Finland, in UK, in US, in Canada, in Uganda, in Kenya, all over in Japan, all over the place. And the conclusions by and large were that people are such as social creatures that even if you pay them money, they still want to be part of society. So the dropout rates actually are incredible. What do they do with this universal basic income except consume what they've been giving, obviously. But what do they do productively during the course of their ordinary day? Again, Watch am- TV, uh, play games on their computer. Um, I mean, universal basic income, in a sense, is welfare by any other name. Well, welfare is essentially designed to help you to transit from one job to the next uh, and also help uh, the neediest members of the community. Now, uh, what I've just described is that there is no transit to the next stop. Uh, And so there is no point of structuring welfare uh, as an assistant to help you from going to one job to the next when the next job will not exist. Uh, And so so to me, it's not that you are saying, okay, what would people do? Well, one example we suggested in the book uh, is that uh, within the next 20 or 30 years, you know, robots will be running your fridge. They will be ordering your favorite coffee from another robot in another shop. Uh, would people still want to go into nearby small coffee shop, dusty probably, probably playing, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, Madonna song, uh, sitting on the couches, ordering a terribly tasting coffee from another human uh, in order to have a chat with a salesman or another person? Well, the answer is yes, that's probably will be valuable uh, profession. So while well, I'm saying there will be a lot of things to do, it's just not the same as what happened before. And it's mostly driven by humanity uh, rather than uh, financial rewards or rather than by what you call productively employed. Because all the things I've described are productive. They're just not compensated right now or not rewarded right now in exactly the same way. But again, coming back to what we discussed, what is the alternative? And I haven't seen anybody yet articulating what is the alternative to basic universal income guarantee. And in fact, now we are trialing on a global basis. We're replacing paychecks. We're actually doing it as we speak. There are others would say uh, some of the policies being pursued by the U.S. government in attempting to bring jobs back to America is one way to address it, creating more vocational skills, more high-tech skills, creating 
opportunity zones in low-income neighborhoods in America has been embraced by many on the conservative side and even on the liberal side. If society doesn't get its act together globally and the world economies, Victor, do we risk, in your thinking, a total collapse, economic and social? Yes, that's exactly what we're risking. Um, uh, and multiple wars in addition to that. What's the steps to that social and economic collapse? Well, exactly what we've just discussed, that uh, if you think of anybody, anybody who sits in their chair every day, they feel that every minute that passes, they're losing some of their marginal utility, some of their marginal pricing power. Uh, Even if they work, they find they don't feel the same way. They don't even ask for higher wages because, as I said, they don't really feel they deserve to have higher wages. If they go and study, it's not even clear what vocational skills are required, pure science. Because over the longer term, only extreme talent will be useful. You will simply end up joining cables in the offices. Extreme so, talent. Extreme. Just again, it's good to reiterate that or to describe two or three categories which will be in high demand. Well, as I said, I've described quite a few before, whether it's the beginning of life, end of life, sports, uh, whatever that may be. Mm-hmm. Manage, okay. ma- managers, managers who are capable of integrating humans with technology, with financialization, will be regarded very highly. In a country sure. that still have human jury, in a lot of countries there will be no human jury or no longer exist. In a country where there is a human jury, uh, a lawyer capable of arguing the case will be highly, highly valued. For many decades to come, exceptional talent, i.e. thinking outside the box, looking outside mm. the box. Cre- creators. Creators. But remember, uh, Myers-Briggs and all the other psychological studies show that 85-90% of people are followers. They're not creators. Let me throw at this. It might sound like an odd idea, but I'm very much a proponent of productivity gains and good economic models in rural and urban areas. What about the idea of regenerating parts of the rural globe, America? We've just seen all these areas totally depopulated, a process that began at early 1900s and even before that. Does that make sense if it's done on a sort of a voluntary pro-free enterprise basis? More people back in small farms that are productive. It might even help quell some of this social unrest. Well, it could. It could. <clears throat> I think I think John Maynard Keynes, again, to quote the great man, uh, once said, well, one of the solutions for unemployment is, uh, you know, you dig the bottle into the ground and ask people to dig it up again. Uh, and, 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 and the other thing, Milton Friedman once toured uh, Asia, one of the Asia-Pacific countries, and he reputedly looked at the canal uh, that uh, people were building, and they were using shovels. And so he asked uh, the administrator, why Why are they using shovels? Wouldn't the modern equipment do a better job? And administrator says, oh, no, 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 That this is a job creation exercise. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will not be useful to use modern equipment. And you know what, Mil- <laughs> uh, what Milton Friedman reputedly said? Oh, I didn't know uh, that it's job creation. I didn't know you, you, you don't want to build a canal. Well, if job creation you want to 
you, why don't you give them spoons instead of shovels? You will then need a lot more people. <laughs> it's not a productive way to do it. I, but what I'm saying, r- rural regeneration, you absolutely, know, intent. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and my book dwells on many things from a very dark pages, things like God labor. As, a, as the inequality continues to increase, more and more people will be employed in guarding people and guarding mm. their future fortunes. All the way from the God people on the other side to almost hippie communes. If you know the phrase hippie, so well you probably do. You grew up in sixties, uh, mm-hmm. and sort of sort of almost like a hippie commune, commute mm-hmm. that that mm-hmm. grow up in various places in a sort of happy way, growing whatever they're growing or smoking whatever they're smoking, uh, right, right. and and uh, all of that is sort of a rich tapestry what you can do, but. All of that has to be underwritten by something. What we suggested, apart from universal basic income guarantee, we suggest a couple of other policies. One of them clearly has to do with digital economy. Uh, that the likes of Facebook created effectively a country. It's a marketplace of ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's essentially a country. Uh, and so the question is whether that country should... Let me stop you there, Victor. But Facebook and Google and all the other platforms, Twitter and so on and so forth, they are extremely powerful international global organizations. They're like governments of their own, correct? Yes, and, and, and that goes beyond that. I, I mean, there were times, of course, that uh, if you remember, uh, whatever was good for General Motors was good for the United States. Victor, you were born in Kiev, which was at the time capital of the Soviet Ukraine the name of your book is The Great Rupture, Three Empires, Four Turning Points, and the Future of Humanity. Do we need to be free? Question mark. Tell us just a little bit more about yourself. You work for a major bank in Hong Kong. I worked in uh, a financially oriented or investment banking uh, industries for uh, the last uh, 35, almost 40 years, uh, all around the world. Uh, I worked in uh, Sydney, in Melbourne, uh, in Australia. I worked in Hong Kong, uh, in New York, in Moscow, in London, mostly in research, uh, predominantly in equities. Uh, Certainly, uh, for a long time, I've been a both regional and global strategist. Uh, I looked at global issues. And the reason I wrote this book is that I just couldn't find any other book that actually tries to combine technology, uh, history, actually no longer relevant. Um, Mm -hmm. And and at the same time, there is a lot of disruptive books, i.e. saying how much societies are being disrupted, but they don't have linkages back to financial markets, economics. Uh, And so to me, I just couldn't find any other book that actually mixes uh, it uh, it all together. And you're absolutely correct to say I, I am based in Hong Kong now. And the publisher is Boyle and Dalton, The Great Rupture, Three Empires, Four Turning Points, and the Future of Humanity. Do we need to be free? Thank you very much. Look forward to talking to you again. You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.
Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. If anybody thinks that $500 trillion outstanding globally will ever be repaid, they've got to be joking. None of that ever going to get repaid. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political, and social upheaval, Life on Planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. Victor Schreft is my guest coming up. You've just heard him describe the jaw-dropping scale of today's global debt in the age of COVID-19 and how he sees the prospects for repayment. Victor will talk about the great financial challenges now facing mankind and offer his own answers straight from his new book, The Great Rupture, Three Empires, Four Turning Points, and The Future of Humanity. Victor Schweft was born in Kiev when it was the capital of Soviet Ukraine, Today, he's a global strategist at McCary Bank in Hong Kong. Victor's book is controversial, perhaps even disturbing, since it is the basis for Victor's conclusion that there really is no solution today other than a total social and economic collapse for our seemingly uncontrollable debt time bomb. Victor says the solution lies in some form of continuing government state controls of our money supply and policies. You might call it a kind of communism, state capitalism. I do share Victor's enthusiasm for this topic, but I have to disagree with many of his solutions. Victor looks favorably upon modern monetary theory of money printing and advocates for a universal basic income. But let's give him credit, his book, The Great Rupture, may be groundbreaking. He traces four turning points in history, including today's information age, and looks at three empires as he presents his thesis for protecting our freedom. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Victor Schweft says he addresses big questions asked by some of the most distinguished names in high finance today about our global debt. Here's what Odeon Capital's Dick Beauvais had to tell us in a recent show. The question is, what happens the morning after? What happens when the Fed has to stop printing this money and the economy still hasn't recovered? It could get very ugly, yeah. Victor Schweff's answer is simple. There's no going back. So when people say we need to stop printing money, uh, I basically say, well, if you try to converge nominal GDP and liquidity that you're creating, you do understand that there will be no pension. You do understand that your 401k is going to be much less. You do understand that the house you're living in will not be worth what you pay for it. Are you happy with that? Uh, and the answer generally is no. So one of the things the book addresses, why did we decide 
to financialize. Because one part of the argument, of course, in the book is technology and information age. But the other part of the argument is financialization. Why did we decide suddenly to financialize so much? In 1950s, 60s, 70s, even into early 80s, we needed only a dollar of debt for every dollar of GDP. Well, the the thing is that um, people describe a dead bomb or our future generations have to pay it back. Well, nothing actually has to be paid back. The entire purpose of monetary system is to engineer a very slow burn uh, defaults. That's what we're doing. That is the reason why central banks are so desperate to get inflation going. Well, sure, it's grand to have you back. I'm your host, John Aitkburn. Why was the basketball court all wet? Because the players kept dribbling on it. The dad joke. <laughs> Corny, groan-worthy, but also one of the simplest ways to share a moment with your kids. What did the buffalo say when he dropped his son off for school? Bye, son. So take a moment to make your kid laugh, because dad jokes rule. Make your kid laugh today. Go to fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Well, it's just great to have you all back again on my show. I hope you're doing well. I want to first give a big shout out to the hosts at TMI Daily. It's a podcast of TMI Hollywood. I was a guest last Thursday, October 16th. We talked about a lot of stuff. We had a lot of fun, politics, entertainment, polarization in America. You got to go up there and listen to that podcast. We'll get back to that again on another show. Thanks again for having me as your guest. We're going to talk to Victor Schweft in a wee moment, according to Victor, Modern technologies are disrupting the structure of our societies, altering every facet of our lives from the nature of work and what we intrinsically value to how we are informed, entertained and educated. Wow, it's big stuff. According to Victor, this promises to be a far deeper disruption than industrial revolutions. Humanity, he says, is at a major turning point, and how we respond to the merger of technology and financialization will decide our future. Will it be capitalism or communism, feudalism or despotism? I first asked Victor Schweft to describe his book, The Great Rupture, Three Empires, Four Turning Points, and the Future of Humanity. Do we need to be free? Basically, what we described in the book, that the humanity is facing one of the greatest disruptions, uh, certainly in the last uh, 500 years. Um, it's what I describe as a Fujiwara impact, or essentially a merger of two major hurricanes. Uh, one hurricane is technological, a revolution of the information age, uh, and the other one is financialization. Uh, technological revolution is an outgrowth of human spirit 
spirit. Uh, financialization is a wound that we inflicted upon ourselves. But those two forces are now converging. And what they're doing, they're distorting every aspect of our life from our work, what we do, why do we turn up at work at 9 a.m. and finish at 5 p.m., what is the value of what we do, how we get entertained, how we get um, educated, uh, as well as social interactions, personal interactions. It changes everything about our life. Um, I think McKinsey was absolutely correct to argue that information age has a 3,000 times the impact uh, of industrial revolution. In other words, it's much broader uh, and also a lot faster. Uh, And so the idea of the rupture is that we're gradually approaching a black hole, and we don't know what lies on the other side of the black hole. So it is a true rupture. You mentioned three empires. Could you just quickly identify those three? The first part of the book is very much historical in nature, and it basically asks the question, why did the West succeed and non-Western civilizations have collapsed over the last 500 years? Uh, And we identified three major civilizations, uh, Chinese Empire, uh, Russian Empire, uh, as well as the Ottomans. Uh, And so the question we ask, what were the recipe for national and personal success over the last 500 years? And how much do those recipes uh, for success actually is currently uh, changing? The lessons of the last five centuries were unequivocal. Without freedom, there could be no prosperity or happiness. However, does this still hold true in the information age? Tell us why you said that and asked that question. There is no question that if you think of the last five centuries, uh, it's really ability of the West to develop to, to deliver greater freedom, freedom to exchange ideas, views, to disagree, freedom to explore, freedom to exchange ideas. That's what enabled England to have industrial revolution, uh, and that's why we don't have Qing dynasty anymore, and that's why there is no Russian Tsars, and that's why Ottomans no longer exist. It's an interesting side story. Uh, why civilizations clearly over a long period of time refused to get off the doomsday highway, refused to accept the inevitable. So the freedom was the recipe of the West. Now, as we progress over the next uh, 20 or 30 years, what we basically argued since 1971, we were on a very, very different journey. The last 10, 15 years were incredibly disorienting, but the next two decades will be even more disorienting. And so what we're asking is extent to which freedom is still important in the information age. Uh, Maybe we can create now highly illiberal, maybe even brutal societies that no longer will suffer from the stagnation of ideas, stagnation of innovation, stagnation of wealth or growth. And there is a possibility that that actually will be true. We no longer need freedom, certainly not to the same extent as what we did in the last five centuries. And in my view, China is almost on the cusp of proving uh, that freedom is almost optional. Well, many people would dispute that with you about China and have certain reservations, but we can we can get back to that. You say that one thing is certain, traditional liberal capitalism will not survive. 
Yes. Uh, essentially, what we argued that the essence of liberal capitalism is capital and labor. If capital and labor no longer function the way they have done so over the last couple of centuries, then liberal capitalism no longer exists. And what we basically argued in the book, if you think of industrial age, what were the important ingredients? Well, first of all, capital was very scarce. It had to be allocated very carefully. That's why we have accounting systems. That's why we have a discounted cash flow analysis or capital asset pricing models. Today, we are drowning in capital. We have more capital than what we know to do with. Um, and the reason we're drowning in capital is because for the last four decades, we were generating much more liquidity in capital than what underlying economies are requiring. We actually have five, ten times more capital than we need. It is not evenly or even fairly distributed, but there is enough capital out there. So the first major difference. The second major difference is that industrial age was a highly capital-intensive age. This was the era of railways, machinery, factories, roads. Um, if you think of today, most of the new activities are essentially driven by intangible assets. Most of the new activities are quite capital light. And not only their capital light, they have almost no capacity limitations. Uh, and they also offer huge spillover effects. You know, one industry suddenly starts to impact another industry uh, at a great speed. So we're generating a lot of capital and we don't really need that much capital. So the result is that the cost of capital collapsed. Uh, and that's certainly been the case over the last 20 or 30 years. Now, collapsing the cost of capital basically makes a major pillar of the liberal capitalism uh, non-functional. Capital is almost becoming worthless. Now, the other side of liberal capitalism is labor. If you think of people uh, in the 1920th century, they were the primary driver of productivity. That's why they needed to be skilled to ever higher level. That's why people went to colleges. That's why we eliminated illiteracy. And the idea was that people will be the brains of the machine. And so we started skilling people in increasingly narrow and narrow specializations. If you think of the modern age, uh, we're already suffering from decline of the premium for college education. Increasingly, labor is no longer the primary productivity driver. Increasingly, labor is not the brain of machinery anymore. And in the next 10 to 20 years, that's going to go beyond that. It's all started with entertainers, with journalists. It progressed to traders, uh, analysts, fund managers, anybody who deals with digits. Within the next five to 10 years, we're going into atoms, which means manufacturing, logistic, distribution is going to change. And beyond that, uh, 30, 40 years from now, it's uh, singularity where you simply will not be able to tell the difference between human and non-human contribution. So what's happening right now, labor is suffering from what I call declining marginal return and declining pricing power. That is why even at very low levels of unemployment, people were not asking for more wages because they know they, we don't deserve uh, to get paid more. Uh, and, so, and so the result is that neither capital 
nor labor functions the same way. Uh, labor increasingly is being uh, warehoused in temporary, uh, what LSE professor once said, temporary bullshit occupations, <laughs> uh, pending pending their final disposal in a way in which society will find it palatable. And the only reason we're still here is that technology progressed far enough to reduce our utility and pricing power, but not yet far enough to replace us altogether. And when people say, hey, in the past, capital functions differently, labor functions differently, it was all okay. Well, two things to, to, to say here. Number one, uh, is that uh, if you were, and that's what I mentioned in the book, if you go back in time, uh, London, early 1800s, you find a bunch of Luddites just about to smash the loop. And, you'd, and you go and tell them, please don't do it. You know, it's all going to be okay 30 or 40 years from now. Uh, I think those Luddites would have probably smashed your head uh, because, <laughs> because 30, 40 years was the <clears throat> entire lifetime. So the first thing to remember, is that we don't feel the pain of people who had to go through the first and the second industrial revolution. We just remember the outcomes, which were pretty good. It so happens the last 10 years and the next 20 or 30 years will be our progression. It's going to be our life. Uh, and the second thing to highlight, again, I'm coming back to McKinsey, is that both waterfront and the speed of change, I mean, the information age, is much, much stronger and faster than industrial revolutions. So when people say, don't worry about it, buggy driver, become a truck driver. Well, if we don't need a truck driver, what are they going to do next? They can't become anything else. Uh, very soon, PhD in computer science will find that their contribution is also diminishing. So it's not just going to be construction workers or a truck mm -hmm. drivers or fund managers or analysts. So the bottom line that becomes, if you undermine the function of capital, if you undermine the function of, of labor, the traditional liberal capitalism cannot function. Whatever will be on the other side of the black hole might still be called capitalism, but it won't be the same. Or it might be called communism, or it might be called feudalism, or it might be called despotism, or it might be called something else. But it's not going to be what we have experienced over the last several hundred years. I think we're leading into one of the subjects of your book, a universal basic income. And we'll get to that. But just for clarity here, Victor, you're someone who is a proponent of freedom, free enterprise, capitalism of sorts. Can you give us your thoughts on that? You know something about state controls. I usually say, <clears throat> if I could go back to 1980s, I would gladly do so. Uh, but unfortunately, I cannot. Uh, so the idea of sound money the ideal of private sector uh, primacy, uh, the idea of freedom, unfortunately, no longer exists. Uh, if you think of Federal Reserve, they today determine both price and quantity of money. If they determine price and quantity, why do we need prime dealers for? Actually, why do we need commercial bank for when a one party voluntarily uh, somehow determines what is the price of of the single most important commodity in the in our societies, um, and so so to me, if I could resurrect liberal capitalism, I would love to do that. But that train left the station several decades ago, uh, and so my argument is that we can't go back to liberal capitalism. The only thing we can do uh, is move forward, uh, and if we decide to move forward, 
um, private sector primacy, unfortunately, is not going to play the role. So I would have loved to resurrect liberal capitalism if I could. Uh, the problem is it's no longer possible. Resurrecting sound money, resurrecting primacy of private sector is a dream. Uh, and so I, the book is trying to look at alternatives. If that is not the way we are going to go forward, uh, what are the alternatives? Um, and, and that's what a lot of proponents of private um, enterprise uh, seem to forget. Uh, I usually tell them, uh, if you were to run on agenda, I want to restore liberal capitalism, you say, people, do you like it? See, everybody says, yeah, that's a good idea. But I must tell you that this might involve the fact that the house you're living in is not really worth what you paid for it. Are you okay with that? Uh, and people will say, no, I'm not okay with that. It also might involve clearances of accesses. The idea of capitalism is that you clear the stuff. We haven't been clearing anything for 40 years. And so you would say, you know, uh, it might involve closure factories and banks. Are you okay with that? Most people will say, no, I am not okay for it, with it. So restoring liberal capitalism is politically unacceptable, socially unacceptable, uh, and it's economically uh, unacceptable. So the only thing we can do is to move forward. Over the last three to four decades, we effectively just use predominantly monetary levers. Liquidity, interest rates, uh, those levers are becoming incredibly toxic. They're leading to disinflation. They're leading to massive increases in wealth and income uh, inequalities. Uh, it's reducing growth rates, not increasing growth rates. And so we need to entertain new policy tools. And those new policy tools, again, have to come from the public sector, not private. As I said, private sector will never run again, uh, either our economies or our societies. And so, yes, I've come from state control. And, and so you could say, well, Victor, you've come from the state dominance. You have seen how bad it is. Absolutely. It was terrible. Um, and I can't blame anybody who's been try who was trying to escape from that. Uh, the point, again, I'm making is that when people say socialism and communism has failed, I basically answer, how do you know it failed when it never been tried before? And people say, hey, Soviet Union was communism. No, Soviet Union, what it believed to be communist. Uh, if you think of Karl Marx, the idea of communism was not the socialist perversions of the 20th century. The idea was that it's a society with such a high degree of productivity that the slavery of labor is no longer needed. And indeed, Karl Marx was not the only one. Think of John Maynard Keynes in 1930. He wrote his piece on the future of our grandchildren. Mm. And what he basically was saying, in four generations, which is basically now, <clears throat> in four generations, uh, Humanity will have a major problem, and the problem is what to do with ourselves when uh, technology and compound interest yield us such a returns that we're no longer useful. How are we going to entertain ourselves? How we are going to feel good about ourselves? And if you go back, to, if you go to 1980s, 1990s, people like Peter Drucker, uh, one of the founders of management science, uh, people like Ray Kurzweil, who is with Google, they've been speculating pretty much on the same ideas. So Karl Marx was speculating back in 1850s. But we can also look at 1930s. We can look at 1980s, 90s. Uh, and the idea of communism, or call it enlightened communism, or call it 
uh, something else uh, more palatable to people is essentially idea of very high productivity society. Uh, and and the, the challenge we have is that right now our productivity is low because we're warehoused in temporary bullshit mm. occupations. As soon as we stop being warehoused, productivity mm. will mushroom. And then the question then becomes, uh, what do we do with ourselves? How do we become valuable part of community? Um, how do we how do we feel satisfied? Is it going to be sports? Is it going to be religion? Is it going to be something else that will make us happy? So just to look at today's global economy and to find out how you define the capital that's flooding our globe, how do you factor in the massive amount of money printing by central banks and the US Federal Reserve? There's a lot of global debt. So where does the actual real capital fit into this? So you find equity is capital, bonds are capital, uh, repo market is capital, uh, anything is capital. So when people say, what is a holistic definition of capital? Well, it's anything that can be used as capital, anything that can be leveraged as capital. Remember, CDSs, uh, uh, collateralized debt obligations back in 2008, was also capital, uh, which was leveraged. Uh, and the thing is, people mm. say, look at what Federal Reserve is doing. Well, in fact, fact, if you put nominal GDP of the United States in mid to late 80s uh, at around 100, uh, and if you put money supply at around 100, for the last 40 years, uh, United States, and by the way, other developed countries as well, have grown money supply two to three times faster than nominal GDP. Now, the question is, the, the difference between those two lines, where is it? Well, the answer, this is your pension plan. This is your 401k. This is your houses that you're living in. Prior to mid-80s, houses were places where you were hiding from rain, cooking meals. They were not an investable asset class. Today, the investable asset class, people flip the flats. They do all sorts of stuff. So when people mm -hmm. say, well, we need to stop printing money, <clears throat> uh, I basically say, well, if you try to converge nominal GDP and liquidity that you're creating, you do understand that there will be no pensions. You do understand that your 401k is going to be much less. You do understand that the house you're living in will not be worth what you pay for it. Are you happy with that? Uh, and the answer generally is no. So one of the things the book addresses, why did we decide to financialize? Because one part of the argument, of course, in the book is technology and information age. But the other part of the argument is financialization. Why did we decide suddenly to financialize so much? In 1950s, <clears throat> 60s, 70s, even into early 80s, we needed only a dollar of debt for every dollar of GDP. Now we need three, four, five dollars of debt for every dollar of GDP. If you think of value of all of the financial instruments we have outstanding, it's five, ten times now the size of the underlying economies. So why did we make that decision? Did anybody make that decision? Well, the answer, as, as usual, nobody makes those decisions. We just stumble into it. We can go back to Paul Walker of Federal Reserve. We can go back to uh, 1987 Black uh, Friday and Greenspan put. But essentially in 1980s, deregulation of the global product market, deregulation of the global labor market and capital market started to encourage debt. 
it started to encourage bringing future consumption to the present. And when you start doing it, you can't stop. And we've been on that train, not for the last two or three years. We've been on this train for four decades now. And so the question is, how do you break it? Well, the answer is the only way you can break it is through a much uh, uh, more aggressive reliance on fiscal rather than monetary policies. And then the question is, how does the government repay the debt? And the answer, it doesn't. Uh, If anybody thinks that $500 trillion outstanding globally will ever be repaid, they've got to be joking. None of that ever going to get repaid. What you're really describing here, Victor, is a kind of state capitalism, socialism by another name, and modern monetary theory, which we've heard a lot about lately. It's interesting, but you will have a lot of skeptics and a lot of cynics. And I I would have to include myself among among the skeptics, but your theories are fascinating and they're worth studying. So I give you a lot of credit for that. You're really getting into kind of a, a state socialism or state capitalism. That's really where we've been at, it seems to me, by by your descriptions for the last four decades. And then there's the question of repaying all this debt, which you started to describe. So maybe we could pick it up from there and look at it even closer. Well, the, the thing is that... Um People describe a dead bomb or our future generations have to pay it back. Well, nothing actually has to be paid back. The entire purpose of monetary system is to engineer a very slow burn uh, defaults. That's what we're doing. That is the reason why central banks are so desperate to get inflation going. For listeners who are listening to your presentation, again, what a study, many of them are saying, well, Victor is really advocating total state control of our economy. And and a lot of people have great difficulty with that. Uh, absolutely, including myself. Uh, but nevertheless, I always ask those people, what is the alternative? Uh, and they say, well, let's just get Federal Reserve out of the game. Wonderful. As soon as you get them out of the game, volatility of asset prices will go berserk. Uh, as volatility of asset prices goes berserk, almost immediately that cloud of finance, which is hanging over global economy, which is five, ten times larger than underlying economy. When I was a young man, underlying economy was a dog. Uh, finance economy was a tail. Today, finance economy is a dog, and the underlying economy is just a tail. And the whole objective of central banks is to ensure that the debt that the dog is not sitting on the tail. Because if you allow volatility to go through the system, the impact on real underlying economies are going to be massive. As I said, house prices will collapse, portfolios will collapse. Uh, and how you're going to find your way out of that is far, far from clear. The other thing people say, hey, uh, Victor, um, increasingly the governments are becoming much more intrusive in private sector. Uh, Mm -hmm. It is very true. It is they are becoming much more intrusive. But again, who is to blame? And I usually say people to blame. Uh, Look at yourself in the mirror. You are asking central banks to deliver your house prices. You're asking central banks to deliver your 401ks. Uh, you're also at the same time asking uh, to have jobs. You're asking 
for firms not to close. You're asking for banks not to close. Uh, you're asking for all of that, uh, and it's very hard to deliver. At the same time, remember, the younger generation, particularly millennials and Z generation, they grew up in a different climate to baby boomers, the same way as baby boomers were uprising in late 60s to mid-70s against the silent generation. Uh, millennials in Z today are prizing against baby boomers. And what younger generation is asking for is support, help, community spirit, sharing. Whereas baby boomers were all in favor of choice, freedom. Well, and Victor, so- Victor, I, I got to interrupt here. I mean, that's all very good. But what about old fashioned virtues such as personal responsibility and not have the government do everything for you and you do it yourself? free enterprise at the local and domestic level. Uh, Absolutely, including myself. Uh, But nevertheless, I always ask those people, what is the alternative? Uh, And they say, well, let's just get Federal Reserve out of the game. Wonderful. As soon as you get them out of the game, volatility of asset prices will go berserk. Uh, As volatility of asset prices goes berserk, almost immediately that cloud of finance which is hanging over global economy, which is five, ten times larger than underlying economy. When I was a young man, underlying economy was a dog. Uh, finance economy was a tail. Today, finance economy is a dog, and the underlying economy is just a tail. And the whole objective of central banks is to ensure mm. that, the, that mm. the dog is not sitting on the tail. Because if you allow volatility to go through the system, the impact on real underlying economies are going to be massive. As I said, house prices will collapse, portfolios will collapse. uh, And how you're going to find your way out of that is far, far from clear. The other thing people say, hey, uh, Victor, um, increasingly the governments are becoming much more intrusive in private sector. Uh, It is very true. It is they are becoming much more intrusive. But again, who is to blame? And I usually say people to blame. Uh, Look at yourself in the mirror. You are asking central banks to deliver your house prices. You're asking central banks to deliver your 401ks. Uh, You're also at the same time asking uh, to have jobs. You're asking for firms not to close. You're asking for banks not to close. Uh, You're asking for all of that. Uh, And it's very hard to deliver. At the same time, remember, the younger generation, particularly millennials and Z generation, they grew up in a different climate to baby boomers, the same way as baby boomers were uprising in late 60s to mid-70s against the silent generation. Uh, Millennials in Z today are prizing against baby boomers. And what younger generation is asking for is support, help, community spirit, sharing, whereas baby boomers were all in favor of choice, Mm -hmm. freedom. Yeah, and and, and and why Joe Biden has picked up on that agenda. Arguably, the government has been heavily involved in economies, at least in the U.S., since the First and Second World Wars and the Great Depression, when we had the introduction of the Great Society and welfare programs. I mean, you could trace it back a lot of what we're seeing today, except it's on a more intense level 
now. You're absolutely right. In fact, you can argue, you can go back to 1880s when Iron Chancellor Bismarck uh, introduced the first welfare policies in Germany. At the time, it was regarded as a terrible, terrible thing. So you have unemployment benefits. My God, you have a healthcare <laughs> benefits. Uh, it's going to derail our economy. Well, it didn't. Second Industrial Revolution continued to power on. The reason, the reason Bismarck was introducing is trying to reduce mm-hmm. social tensions that we're building during the Second Industrial Revolution. After this wee break, we'll be right back with Victor Schweft, author of Three Empires, Four Turning Points, and the Future of Humanity. Do we need to be free? Victor is also a global strategist at McCary Bank in Hong Kong, and he's lots to tell us about our current economic situation and mountains of debt. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. To protect her home and family in a disaster, Karen was willing to wade through water, mud, and insurance paperwork. Yeah, I can do this. You go, Karen! By simply understanding and updating what her insurance covers and doesn't cover now, she'll be better prepared no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. Where do you see the role of Wall Street and big financial institutions today? Where do they sit as we look at the globe, COVID-19, massive bailouts for big companies, zombie companies, extended unemployment benefits, mountains of debt. I mean, they're participants in this whole system. What is the role today compared to traditionally? If you go back in the olden days, uh, banks essentially were conduits of, of deposits. So you place the money in the bank, and the bank will just then lend it out to to other people who require capital. Uh, now, what started to happen over the last forty years? Velocity. Uh, has increased. So in other words, in the past, you used to have one financial instrument per asset. So if you did your mortgage, your bank carried your mortgage through the duration of your mortgage. Today, uh, quite often, there is three, four, five pieces of paper for every underlying assets. If suddenly music stops uh, and your mortgage stops, you might find four or five people coming knocking on your door. Some people own the principal uh, on your mortgage. Some will own a right to interest payments. Some will own insurance. So what happened is that the finance industry, after uh, Richard Nixon moved to uh, United States of the gold standard in 1971, and after Paul Walker created a monetized system that encouraged uh, uh, borrowing and encouraged debt uh, in late 70s to mid 80s, what started to happen is that finance industry started to generate capital for the sake of capital. Uh, and increasingly, that capital and that liquidity never find its way to the ground. Uh, and so people on the ground never see it. It stays in a cloud of finance, and it keeps multiplying for its own sake. Uh, and so the question that becomes, how do we direct this capital down to the ground? How do we how we direct it to what people want us to do, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's changing education and skilling system, whether it's a healthcare spending, whether it's a basic R&D. Remember, United States used to spend 2% of the GDP on basic R&D. All public 
all publicly funded. Today, it's closer to 0.6%. Uh, remember, Google invented nothing. Apple invented nothing. Um, they are great innovators. They're not great inventors. Only public sector can invent. So should public sector again spend more on a basic research and development? The answer is yes. So how do we get this money into the places where we want this money to be? And so if you look at financial institutions, the business model is broken. The markets are broken. That is why today, Federal Reserve controls both volume and prices. In a traditional liberal capitalism, central banks will control price or volume, but they don't control both. Today, if Federal Reserve doesn't like the volume, they just buy it or they create it. If they don't like the price, they control the yield curve. Um, and so when people say, how do we going to repay the debt? I basically say, haven't you heard of Bank of Japan? Bank of Japan is already sitting on 51% of bank of, B of GJBs, Japanese government paper. Haven't you heard of yield control? Reserve Bank of Australia already doing yield control. Uh, bank of Japan is doing yield control. Uh, every economist out there is urging Federal Reserve to also start controlling the yield curve. So by the time you control prices and volumes, and that was my initial question, why do you need prime dealers? Why do you need free markets? Actually, why do you need commercial banks for that matter? So we've progressed so far over the last four decades, uh, and we financialized so much that central banks increasingly cannot tolerate volatility. They can't tolerate price discovery. And the reason they can't tolerate it, because they're afraid what that volatility is going to do to you, people on the ground, people in houses, people who work, um, what, what will be the impact? Uh, and the more you leverage, the more you financialize, the less volatility central banks can accept, the less price discovery they can accept. And, and the question which everybody tries to debate, how do we end it? Well, the answer, we don't. It never ends. It just keeps mm -hmm. going. You mentioned Japan and Europe and so on. Analysts looking across uh, the Western world and the US would say there are many problems that have to be looked at very closely. We have aging populations. Again, we have this whole debt bubble, which you address and uh, mention how the state could intervene. I I'd like to look at governments across uh, the, the West and, and how they individually uh, consider economic policy. If you take the US as one example, you have on the one side the conservative Republican Party, however you define conservative, and then the other you have the Democrats. They're the sort of two major parties. Now, while they differ radically on ideology, the Republican Party is pro-family, pro-life, pro-religious freedom, without a doubt. On the other hand, the Democrats uh, would be socially liberal, uh, pro-choice, sort of do your own thing as it were. But when it comes to basic economic policies, they may argue the facts. They may argue over implementation of certain policies and taxes, and they would differ on fundamentals like regulation and trade agreements. But when it comes down to what we're seeing during COVID-19, for example, it seems both of them are certainly on board. Have the Fed and uh, the government intervene to save us from an absolute disaster and another Great Depression? My question then is, 
is there any significant differences in how a lot of the parties on both sides stand on the big economic issues? They all seem wedded into money printing. Yes, absolutely. You know, the uh, uh, sort of titles, liberal, conservative, Democrat, whatever, they all change meaning uh, over the ages. Um, Traditional liberals were small state, small level of interference, uh, freedom of expression, freedom to do things that you want to do, don't interfere. Um, That was the old definition of a liberal. The way I look at it, neither Democrats nor Republicans are like that. They are more equivalent to sort of semi-communist and semi-fascist or Mm. semi-extreme left-wing, right-wing. The wonderful thing is that if you think of Stalin and Hitler or extreme left and extreme right, they actually share a lot in common. However, there are differences between extreme left and right. Extreme left generally tends to be global in nature. Uh, They tend to be less focused uh, on uh, social or biological matters. Uh, They don't worry so much about things like procreation, race, religion, and things like that. Um, They prefer small enterprises, uh, things like cottage industries, uh, would regulate very tightly uh, large enterprises because they don't believe in either large enterprises or uh, or finances. Now, extreme right, on the other hand, tends to be nationally based. It's us versus them. Uh, it's our race versus the other race. They tend to be incredibly preoccupied with biological and social matters, procreation, abortion, purity, all the rest of it. In addition to that, they tend to be, as I said, much more localized. They are don't really trust private enterprise, but they prefer to create national champions, and they prefer to tell national champions what to do. Victor, you're talking about the extreme, right? Because conservatives generally, at least in America, are are pro-enterprise. They do support cottage industries and small businesses. They're certainly pro-family and pro-life, and for very good reason. They are economic and social units. How would you describe yourself, Victor? What category do you come under? Uh, pragmatist. Uh, in a sense, in a sense, in a sense, I, 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 I believe perfect outcomes are unattainable. Uh, I believe uh, perfect solutions uh, do not exist. But you're a sort of an a la carte pundit, if you will, a little bit of capitalism, a little bit of socialism, a little bit of libertarianism. I mean, surely there's some kind of an evolving label for your type of theories and ideologies. Essentially, what I believe in is that for different parts of the cycles, for different parts of history, uh, different ideologies or different economic and political models uh, are more suitable. And quite often, some of those models outlive their usefulness. Because if we continue with our current policies that we've used over the last 30 or 40 years, basically two or three things will happen. Number one, interest rates everywhere will go negative. Disinflation will get stronger. Gross pockets will get narrower and narrower. Income and wealth inequalities will continue exploding. Different countries will be moving in different directions and different speeds. Social, geopolitical pressures will continue to rise. Eventually, societies, you just won't be able to keep them together. Uh, And so the question then becomes, if that is the answer, if if that is a projection, what is the right answer? that give us economy and society that still keeps some degree of freedom. 
Remember, 1950s was not a liberal free time. In 1950s, you had a committee for un-American activities. In 1950s, Secretary of State said publicly that if anybody disagrees with the ideology of the United States, they should be deported from the United States. If you think of 1950s, if you were deviant in any form, whether it's politically, socially, culturally, sexually, it was not a good time for you. So 1950s was all about obedience. It was all about everybody should look the same. You know, crew cut, uh, uh, fennel suits, uh, you know, the, the house, wife, two dogs, and the picket fences. Uh, everybody aspired to pretty much the same thing. Now, would you argue that 1950s, early 60s was a bad time? Well, today it is remembered as the golden age. It's actually not remembered as a time, unless, of course, you are a minority, but it's not really remembered by most people. Just look at what people like Paul Krugman uh, or people like Robert Reich is writing. They, they all view it, this period of 50s to mid-60s, as being a golden period rather than a, a, a period of, of terrible things. Um, and that's what baby boomers were prizing. Certainly the 50s and 60s. I didn't grow up in America. I grew up in Ireland through the 60s. We were aware of American culture and a lot of relatives came here. So we heard many of the stories that came back. And all my relatives who came to America praised America as the land of freedom. They got there. What they could not get in their own country was job opportunities and prosperity. It wasn't a perfect time, but compared to today where we have street riots families breaking down, economic dislocation, even income inequality, and a lot of social isolation and loneliness. It, it, it wasn't so bad. Yeah, well, uh, you, you obviously have missed uh, uh, University of Berkeley uh, campuses burning. Uh, you've missed in that discussion occupation of Cornell University. You've missed in that discussion riots uh, in Chicago, in Detroit, in LA. Uh, the the second part of uh, Victor, we've had street riots for through the summer, and we had the summer of love yeah, in Portland, Oregon. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's what I'm saying. Uh, is that what you saw? in the second half of 60s, first half of 70s, is baby boomers surprising against stifling norms uh, of the silent generation. What we're seeing today is millennials and Z generation uprising against all the bad things that baby boomers created. Yes, they gave you freedom. Yes, they gave you choice. Yes, they gave you efficiency. Uh, yes, they gave you growth. Uh, yes, they gave you wealth. But they also created extreme income and wealth inequality. They destroyed environments because the growth was regarded as the only thing that really matters. And yes, they've destroyed political culture as well. Uh, and so the younger generation, just like uh, baby boomers back in the 60s and 70s, is saying, no, this is not right. We need to change it. Uh, and so the question that the book tries to address is that what are, what are they going to change it to? Uh, and the answer to me is that they're going to change it much closer to 50s and 60s rather than 80s and 90s. The Great Rupture, Three Empires, Four Turning Points and the Future of Humanity. Do we need to be free? Question mark. Title of your book. Uh, you suggest and propose solutions to our current issues. And one of them is a universal basic income. 
Why do you support it? To me, a universal or basic income guarantee is not designed to create lazy people. It's not a handout. Uh, it's designed to address the key issues. Uh, humans and labor uh, is becoming less and less relevant. It, we are facing not necessarily exploitation, as Yuval Harari correctly said. We're not facing uh, being... Um, underpaid or whatever that might be, what we are facing is increasing irrelevancy. Uh, and so what basic income guarantee does... A very interesting point, irrelevancy, and it's a strong word. Are you saying that there could be masses of workers and human beings idled with this revolution we're going through because of technology and all the changes? Fujiwara effect, what I just described, which is a merger of technology and financialization, is accelerating our descent towards the black hole. Uh, in that black hole, by and large, people no longer are the primary productivity drivers. Now, that's already started happening in the 1980s. If you remember in the 1990s, a lot of middle management lost their jobs. Uh, that was the first IT revolution. As we go forward over the next five, 10 years, uh, we will increasingly start attacking atoms. In other words, how we manufacture and distribute will change. In the next five, 10 years, 15 years, most of the factories will start disappearing. Most of the supply and value chains will start disappearing. So the same pressure that journalists have experienced, construction workers, so manufacturing mm. workers will start experiencing. And then, as I said earlier on, 30 years, 40 years from now is a singularity where you can't really differentiate human or non-human contribution. That is where PhD in computer science will start feeling less and less relevant. Now, remember, that perception of irrelevancy everybody feels, that's what drives Maslovian disappointment. That's why people are not happy, because they feel they're not contributing as much as they used to, they're not as valuable as much as they used to be. That feeling of irrelevancy will grow greater and greater every year as we're passing. The way the book describes is that you don't need to be at the frontier of the black hole to feel the black hole. We're still, mm. dec we're still decades away. But what is happening, the black hole is stretching our bodies, is stretching our minds, is stretching the way we look at things, stretching our investment strategies. Uh, if you're a bank, it stretches and changes and alters everything. And so ultimately, uh, Karl Marx was right. Ultimately, John Maynard Keynes was right. Ultimately, Peter Drucker and Ray Corswell are right. We need to find a way of allowing people to find themselves rather than forcing them essentially into slavery of labor. Uh, and so eventually basic income guarantee or universal income guarantee tries to address the issue of social uh, tensions and the issue of growing irrelevancy, not trying to be a handout or create lazy people or anything like that. And by the way, trials were done in Finland, in UK, in US, in Canada, in Uganda, in Kenya, all over in Japan, all over the place. And the conclusions by and large were that people are such as social creatures that even if you pay them money, they still want to be part of society. So the dropout rates actually are incredible. What do they do with this universal basic income except consume what they've been giving, obviously. But what do they do productively during the course of their ordinary day? Again, Watch TV, uh, play games on their computer. Um, I mean, 
universal basic income in a sense is welfare by any other name. Well, welfare is essentially designed to help you to transit from one job to the next uh, and also help uh, the neediest members of the community. Now, uh, what I've just described is that there is no transit to the next stop. Uh, and so there is no point of structuring welfare uh, as an assistant to help you from going to one job to the next when the next job will not exist. Uh, and so, and so, to me, it's not that you are saying, "Okay, what would people do?" Well, one example we suggested in the book uh, is that uh, within the next twenty or thirty years, you know, robots will be running your fridge. They will be ordering your favorite coffee from another robot in another shop. Uh, would people still want to go into nearby small coffee shop, dusty probably, probably playing, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, Madonna song, uh, sitting on the couches, ordering a terribly tasting coffee from another human uh, in order to have a chat with a salesman or another person? Well, the answer is yes, that's probably will be valuable uh, profession. So while I'm saying there will be a lot of things to do, it's just not the same as what happened before. And it's mostly driven by humanity uh, rather than uh, financial rewards or rather than by what you call productively employed. Because all the things I've described are productive. They're just not compensated right now or not rewarded right now in exactly the same way. But again, coming back to what we discussed, what is the alternative? And I haven't seen anybody yet articulating what is the alternative to basic universal income guarantee. And in fact, now we are trialing on a global basis. We're replacing paychecks. We're actually doing it as we speak. There are others would say uh, some of the policies being pursued by the U.S. government in attempting to bring jobs back to America is one way to address it, creating more vocational skills, more high-tech skills, creating opportunity zones in low-income neighborhoods in America has been embraced by many on the conservative side and even on the liberal side. If society doesn't get its act together globally and the world economies, Victor, do we risk, in your thinking, a total collapse economic and social? Yes, that's exactly what we're risking. Um, uh, and multiple wars in addition to that. What's the steps to that social and economic collapse? Well, exactly what we've just discussed, that uh, if you think of anybody, anybody who sits in their chair every day, they feel that every minute that passes, they're losing some of their marginal utility, some of their marginal pricing power. Uh, even if they work, they find they don't feel the same way. They don't even ask for higher wages because, as I said, they don't really feel they deserve to have higher wages. If they go and study, it's not even clear what vocational skills are required, pure science. Because over the longer term, only extreme talent will be useful. You will simply end up joining cables in the offices. Extreme so, talent. Extreme. Just again, it's good to reiterate that or to describe two or three categories which will be in high demand. Well, as I said, I've described quite a few before, whether it's the beginning of life, end of life, sports, uh, whatever that might be. Mm -hmm. Manage okay. ma managers, managers who 
are capable of integrating humans with technology, with financialization, will be regarded very highly. In countries that still have human jury, in a lot of countries there will be no human jury or no longer exist. In countries where there is a human jury, uh, a lawyer capable of arguing the case will be highly, highly valued. For many decades to come, exceptional talent, i.e. thinking outside the box, looking outside Mm. the box. Creators. Creators. But remember, uh, Myers-Briggs and all the other psychological studies show that 85-90% of people are followers. They're not creators. Let me throw at this. It might sound like an odd idea, but I'm very much a proponent of productivity gains and good economic models in rural and urban areas. What about the idea of regenerating parts of uh, the rural globe, America? We've just seen all these areas totally depopulated, a, a process that began at early 1900s and even before that. Does that make sense if it's done on a sort of a voluntary pro-free enterprise basis? More people back in small farms that are productive. It might even help quell some of this social unrest. Well, it could. It could. <clears throat> I think I think John Maynard Keynes, again, to quote the great man, uh, once said, well, one of the solutions for unemployment is, uh, you know, you dig the bottle into the ground and ask people to dig it up again. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 and the other thing, Milton Friedman once toured uh, Asia, one of the Asia-Pacific countries, and he reputedly looked at the canal uh, that uh, people were building, and they were using shovels. And so he asked uh, the administrator, why Why are they using shovels? Wouldn't the modern equipment do a better job? And administrator says, oh, no, 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 That this is a job creation exercise. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will not be useful to use modern equipment. And you know what, Mil- <laughs> uh, what Milton Friedman reputedly said? Oh, I didn't know uh, that it's job creation. I didn't know you, you, you don't want to build a canal. Well, if job creation you want to why don't you give them spoons instead of shovels? You will then need a lot more people. <laughs> it's not a productive way to do it. I, but what I'm saying, r- rural regeneration, you I know, intense. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and my book dwells on many things from a very dark pages, things like God labor. As, a, as the inequality continues to increase, more and more people will be employed in guarding people and guarding mm. their future fortunes. All the way from the God people on the other side, to almost hippie communes. If you know the phrase hippie, so well, you probably do. You grew up in the 60s. And sort of sort of almost like a hippie commune, commune mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. grow up in various places in a sort of happy way, growing whatever they're growing or smoking, whatever they're smoking. Uh, right, right. And, and uh, all of that is sort of a rich tapestry, what you can do. But all of that has to be underwritten by something. What we suggested, apart from universal basic income guarantee, we suggest a couple of other policies. One of them clearly has to do with digital economy. Uh, that the likes of Facebook created effectively a country. It's a marketplace of ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's essentially a country. Uh, and so the question is whether that country should... Let me stop you there, Victor. But Facebook and uh, Google and um, all the other platforms, Twitter and so on, and so forth. They are extremely powerful international global organizations. They're like governments of their own, correct? Yes, and, and that goes beyond that. I, I mean, there were times, of course, that uh, 
if you remember, uh, whatever was good for General Motors was good for the United States. So it's not unusual to be an answer. Victor, as I said, you were born in Kiev, which was at the time capital of the Soviet Ukraine. The name of your book is The Great Rupture, Three Empires, Four Turning Points and the Future of Humanity. Do we need to be free? Question mark. Tell us just a little bit more about yourself. You work for a major bank in Hong Kong. I worked in uh, financially oriented or investment banking uh, industries for uh, the last uh, 35, almost 40 years uh, all around the world. Uh, I worked in uh, Sydney, in Melbourne, uh, in Australia, worked in Hong Kong, uh, in New York, in Moscow, in London, mostly in research, uh, predominantly in equities. Uh, Certainly uh, for a long time, I've been a both regional and global strategies. Uh, I looked at global issues. And the reason I wrote this book is that I just couldn't find any other book that actually tries to combine technology, uh, history, social, political science, economics, and financial markets. There are terrific books on technology, but they're not looking backwards. Neither, Neither are they looking at financial markets or economics. There are terrific books on debt, debt sustainability and everything else, but they're not looking at how technological landscape is changing, demographic landscape is changing. Neither they're looking backwards at history, try to learn uh, from the past. Uh, there is a lot of uh, uh, books on how to succeed. In other words, which country succeeds, which countries fail, but mostly they are driven by the history of 500 years without recognizing that that history actually no longer relevant. Um, mm-hmm. and, and at the same time, there is a lot of disruptive books, i.e. saying how much societies are being disrupted, but they don't have a linkages back to financial markets, economics. Uh, and so to me, I just couldn't find any other book that actually mixes uh, it, uh, it all together. And you're absolutely correct to say I, I am based in Hong Kong now. And the publisher is Boyle and Dalton, The Great Rupture, Three Empires, Four Turning Points, and the Future of Humanity. Do we need to be free? Thank you very much. Look forward to talking to you again. You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aidan Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S., or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S., or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S., or email burndesk at gmail.com.